Well, good morning and welcome to uh, the next uh, episode of our short series looking at the overall message of the book of Job. I'd like to read with you one section from Job chapter 28. This is called the last words of Job, the Job's last speech. And as he reflects on how his suffering has led him into dark places, he compares his experience in this passage with the experience of an ancient miner who had dug shafts deep underground in search of gold and precious stones. So let's read the first six verses of Job chapter 28. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. Now, we'll look at the significance of this perspective of Job's life towards the end of our study. Now, the book of Job raises very directly the problem of suffering in life. And it's a question which people from different cultures across the world commonly ask. Why is there suffering in the world? Everyone would like a life of peace, a life free from suffering, free from stress. People sometimes even use the prevalence of suffering as an argument against the existence of God. But could suffering actually be part of God's plan for us? And if so, what is its role in our lives? And what does this tell us about God? Now, can I give you a rather simplistic answer to this question, just one uh, way of looking at it. Consider how our bodies are designed and how our bodies become strong and healthy. Now, let me ask you, you men to consider this situation. Imagine that at Christmas time, your wife buys you a most expensive gift, <clears throat> a one-year membership of your local gym, including the services of a personal trainer. Perhaps you both have visions of you returning with impressive muscles, being able to impress people with how strong you are. So you go to your first training session in an optimistic mood. The trainer takes one look at you and says, let's forget about the weights, we'll start with walking. So he puts you on the walking machine and sets it for 15 minutes. You start off nonchalantly, but after 10 minutes, you are exhausted and hurting with pains and muscles that you never knew you had. And after 15 minutes is over, you're wishing you'd never been born. You're having dark thoughts about your wife's motives for choosing this particular gift for you. But when you reluctantly return for your second session, Something has happened. 
You're now able to walk for 15 minutes without becoming exhausted. Without realizing it, your circulation and breathing has started to improve because of what you went through the first time. Your muscles, which hurt so much before, have become stronger. And your personal trainer notices the improvement and puts you on to the next exercise, which nearly kills you again. Then this whole process starts all over again. You go through the cycle of pain, despair, followed by the unseen and gradual development of new strength and resilience. Our bodies are designed to respond positively to stress and pain in a controlled fashion. If we refuse to endure any physical stress, our muscles will become weak, our bones will become brittle and fragile. We will be much more vulnerable to disease, to disease and we'll be knocked back by the least hurt and we'll be of less use to others. Now, if our bodies are designed like that, then we should not be surprised if our minds and our souls are also designed to grow and become strong like that. To become strong mentally, we need to learn to endure mental stress and not to run away from it. Some people today believe that children should never have to endure discipline or should never experience mental stress. And when schools try to impose discipline, some parents resist it with legal challenges and even call it abuse. But the result of that attitude would be to bring up a generation which is mentally weak and vulnerable to all kinds of mental illness. And in the spiritual realm, the Apostle John explicitly draws the parallel between physical health and spiritual health. In 3 John, he writes to his friend Gaius, dear friend, he says, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. So God wants us to become spiritually strong, healthy, and resilient. And from seeing how the body is designed to become stronger, we should not expect to become spiritually strong and resilient merely by reading books or by meditating or by praying for ours. Our souls are designed to become strong through enduring stress and suffering. So what I would like to do this morning is to follow the experience of Job through to the end of his speeches and to see how Job becomes uh, progressively stronger and more resilient through his suffering throughout the book but this time under the careful guidance of God as his personal trainer. So let's track Job's response to his suffering. In chapter 1, Job takes the loss of his wealth and even the loss of his children without apparently being plunged into utter despair or without being prompted to make accusations of injustice. But in chapter 2, he loses his health in a cruel way, which causes him to lose his dignity and the respect in the eyes of the community of which he had once been a leader. This prompts Job to pour out his heart to his three friends. 
And in chapter 3, we get a glimpse of Job's first response to his suffering. In short, he wishes he had never been born. He says, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? Now, a person who genuinely wishes that they had never even existed is in a very low place in their life. And here we see Job utterly exhausted spiritually. He has no more strength. And although Job was a righteous man, he has reached the limits of his uh, strength and resilience. And without meaning to sound mundane, he is like that person whose first visit to the gym left him utterly exhausted and without hope. Without hope. But remember, this was only the beginning of Job's journey, the starting point in a long journey which the Lord was going to bring Job on. So I'd like to just review Job's journey through the book to see particularly how Job became progressively stronger and more resilient through his suffering under God's personal guidance with God as his personal trainer. And God was going to use Job's friends not to comfort Job, but actually to provoke Job by offering Job various false explanations of his suffering. For example, the first of Job's friends tries to comfort Job with the philosophical view of suffering, which basically says, that's life. Suffering is inevitable and mindless. Eliphaz says, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. In other words, saying to Job, look, you're suffering. There's no, thing, there's no mind behind it. This happens to everybody. And God was using Job's friends to go, go Job to respond and to stir up a reaction from him. Any reaction was better than wishing he had never existed. And so Job starts to reason about his suffering. He rejects outright the analysis of Eliphaz by pointing out something about his suffering. Many people have suffered the loss of their wealth. Some, sadly, have suffered the loss of their family. And some have suffered from debilitating disease. But few are struck with these all at once, one after the other. And to Job, the fact that his troubles hit him in what looked like a coordinated plan, it sent a message to him, someone is out to get you. It was evidence to Job that this was not random. This was not sparks flying upwards. There was an intelligence behind this. And so he challenges God with two things. He says, relent and do not be unjust. And he says, why have you made me your target? Job felt he was being targeted and targeted by God. And Job's feeling that he was being targeted by God raises for the first time the question 
of justice. And he says to God, do not be unjust. Was God shocked at Job having a temerity to claim that God was unjust? Far from it. Job had moved on from wishing he had never been born. He is now starting to argue and to fight back, and he expects God to be just. The struggle has moved on to new ground, arguing about God's character and what God was doing. And this was progress in the eyes of his personal trainer, God. And here, too, we see the role of Job's friend, Eliphaz, not to comfort him, but Job's annoyance at Eliphaz's unsatisfactory explanation of suffering goads Job to argue that his suffering is unjust. This is what the Lord wanted. Now, once the argument moves on to God's justice, this gives Job new direction, a new line of argument, and new hope. He reasons correctly that if God is just, truly just, then God must offer a legal process. Not simply where God announces the sentence, but where the accused has the opportunity to put his case, to be questioned, and to question his accusers. Now, this is another step forward for Job. But as he thinks about it, he sees an insurmountable problem, and he senses almost despair again. He says, how could someone like me argue successfully except someone as wise as God in court? He says, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. And for a moment, uh, Job again feels defeated. But since he still believes that God is fundamentally just, he reasons that there must be some other way forward. So he reasons that the solution must be that he needs someone very capable in heaven who would be able to argue Job's case much more effectively than he could himself. And so he says then in chapter 9 about God, he is not a mere mortal like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only, he says, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. And Job is making more progress, more progress in his search for understanding, his search for an answer. He is, we can see him getting spiritually more fit and more resilient through trying to reconcile what has happened to him with his firm conviction that God is just. He still hasn't reached the final destination which God has in for him, but he is getting stronger and more courageous. And eventually, in his closing speech, Job is not relying on any intermediary to put his case for him. He is personally arguing his own case boldly before God. And it's quite uh, startling to see what he says. He does not merely complain about injustice. He intelligently argues his case with God the way a good barrister would do. 
For example, uh, towards the end in chapter 30, let's look and see how he even uses emotional arguments against God to put his case. He says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. And he says, surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. He says, have I not wept for those in trouble? Has my soul grieved? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. Job is contrasting how he has responded in his life to those in trouble. He's contrasting that with how God is apparently ignoring Job's cry to God for help. It's a very bold argument that Job is putting. He's trying to get, I think, a reaction from God, trying to provoke God to an answer when his character uh, is almost called into question by Job implying that he seems kinder than God. Now, would God be outraged by that argument? Does he say, how dare you challenge my actions? No. In fact, at the end of the book, the Lord says that Job spoke what was right. God is delighted to see how Job has become stronger and has progressed, and how he has become strong enough to argue his case directly. Now, Job argues against many of the false explanations of his suffering which his friends throw up. But there is something in particular which Job argues against, particularly towards the end of his journey. He rejects the false gospel, if I could put it like that, which his friends repeatedly put forward. The false explanations of life. And this false teaching is summed up by Job's fourth companion, the younger man Elihu, in chapter 36. And this is Elihu's doctrine, his gospel, if you like. This is how he sums up God, the relationship between God and men. He says, if men obey and serve God, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. Is that true? Do you think it's reasonable? This belief about God has the appearance of making some sense. In a way, it seems fair. But Job has repeatedly rebelled against this teaching. He's already almost shouted out many times to his friends to look at the evidence of life. Job has said, but the righteous do suffer. He says, just look at me. And he says, the wicked are not punished. He describes how the wicked live often a life of ease and luxury and are never seemingly judged. And his, this teaching of Elihu ignores the evidence of life. Now, Job's friends were not the last systematic theologians to blatantly ignore facts. 
which conflict with their theology and their theological system about God. The doctrine which Elihu and Job's three other friends put forward is basically this, that serving God is motivated by a desire for, for prosperity. That's what Elihu says. You know, if you want to have a prosperous life, serve God, obey him and serve him. And if you don't, well, you won't prosper. People serve God, says Elihu, not because of God's character, but out of self-interest. <clears throat> now, does this sound familiar to you? If you've been following our series in Job, you'll remember how the book opens with the confrontation between God and Satan. What Elihu says is exactly how Satan articulates his own understanding of why people worship and serve God. Basically, he says that if you serve God, he says this to God, if you serve God, God will bless you with wealth. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. And God gives Satan the chance to challenge that by removing Job's wealth. And then Satan comes up with something else. He says, if you serve God, God will bless you with good health. He says, a man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan's false gospel and false belief is basically the wealth and health gospel. Sadly, there are many preachers in our world today who preach the same gospel which Satan believed. They preach that if you serve God, God will reward you financially, or he will reward you with good health. And if you don't have good health, you must have done something wrong. If you're poor, that is not God's will for you. And this so-called prosperity gospel, it appeals to people who are motivated by self-interest rather than being drawn by God's character. And there's, there's no better book in the Bible to demolish the false and deceit, deceitful teaching of the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, as we call it, than the book of Job. And uh, this climax, if you like, uh, of the discussion between Job and his friends, it gives us now one, uh, another perspective on the purpose of Job's journey through suffering. I think it gives us insight into one reason why God was strengthening and encouraging Job to argue against the false teaching of his friends. Because it turns out that Job was not actually challenging God he was challenging Satan's false teaching, Satan's false gospel. Job does not know about Satan's work behind the scenes in uh, wanting Job to be targeted. But Job does encounter Satan's thinking through his friends as they try to comfort him with false teaching. And as Job demolishes his friends' arguments, Job is actually demolishing Satan's 
false beliefs. In the first two chapters, you notice how God answers Satan's false beliefs. He doesn't argue with Satan doctrinally, scripturally, or philosophically. He just says, look at Job, watch him. Listen to how he responds. And all through the book, as Job is arguing, thinking he's arguing against God, he's actually arguing against what Satan has claimed in God's presence. And as Satan follows Job's arguing against the fundamental prosperity gospel, Job is actually rebuking Satan and demolishing Satan's charge against God. That argument that Satan heard is far more effective coming from the lips of a man like Job, a man who had lost his wealth, a man who had lost his health, but still trusts God. It is a more effective rebuke of Satan to hear it coming from a human being than even coming from the lips of God himself. And for Job to be able to do this, he had to be strengthened. This is why God first had to strengthen Job. The Lord had been, has been Job's personal trainer, strengthening Job spiritually as he endures and argues against his suffering. God wants to turn Job into someone with the spiritual strength to vigorously refute Satan from his own experience and to refute Satan's false view of why people worship God. So God has good reason to encourage Job to stand up and argue about the injustice which he has experienced in his suffering. But was there anything in it for Job? Does God just use Job as a tool in the fight against the lies of Satan? Well, this is why I read with you the start of Job's closing speech in chapter 28. As Job reviews his journey of suffering, <clears throat> he realizes that he has been led into very dark places. But now he realizes that he has not been in total darkness. He sees his experience rather like that of a miner in ancient times who descends into dark parts of the earth in search of gold and precious stones like diamonds and rubies that do not appear on the surface of the earth. And we have seen that Job, through wrestling with his discovery, his suffering, he discovers some really precious truths. He comes to some really valuable understanding. For example, uh, in the process of wrestling with his suffering, he came to an assurance of his own bodily resurrection after he died. He says, though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Somehow, Job, in his darkness, had discovered one of the most fundamental truths, that death is not the end, and that those who trust God will be resurrected and will see God. He also saw that one day God himself would walk this earth. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand 
in the latter day upon the earth. I think Job has foreseen that one day God the Son would be born into this world and would walk this earth. So Job had discovered the truths of the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus. These were precious jewels which not only sustained and comforted Job, but what he discovered has encouraged and enlightened countless believers down through the centuries. Even as Paul is talking about the second coming of the Lord, he says, comfort one another with these words. Now, I'll just stress again that what I presented this morning is only one way of looking at the book of Job, and certainly not the most profound perspective. But let me just finish by drawing some basic applications of Job's journey for believers who are facing life's sufferings. I'm sorry if these seem a little simplistic and perhaps even rather unsympathetic. But firstly, as we see how Job became spiritually stronger under God's guiding hand, remember that God wants all of us to become spiritually resilient and strong. He doesn't want us to fall over at the least uh, thing that goes wrong in our lives. He doesn't want us to go into a sulk when we are criticized, whether justly or not. And becoming strong spiritually will require us to endure spiritual stress, sometimes even spiritual pain. It will not come through reading books, through going to meetings, through singing wonderful songs, or through meditating. It comes through enduring hardship, and this is within God's will. Secondly, just a little bit of advice, don't remain stuck when life doesn't work out as you hoped. At the beginning of Job's journey, we saw that Job just wished he had never been born. Notice, though, that the book does not end there. If that had been where Job got stuck, there would have been no progress in his life. He would never have achieved God's purpose. Job moved on from that low point in his experience. Some Christians, sadly, can become permanently discouraged when life doesn't work out as they had dreamed. But don't get stuck in that state of discouragement. Don't carry it round with you like a burden which clouds the rest of your life. For example, perhaps someone's dream is to get married, but that doesn't work out. Some Christians never get over that. They constantly feel they have missed out on life. They constantly feel life has treated them unjustly. But if you're stuck in that discouragement. Put your case to God and move on. Become more resilient and less fragile. There's so many other battles to be fought in the Christian life, so many other victories to be won. Or perhaps parents have the dream that their children will all become believers and will be active in serving the Lord. But when life and family doesn't turn out that way, Sometimes parents respond the way Job's friends responded. You must have done something wrong. 
But Job repeatedly argues against drawing any such conclusion. And there comes the point where we just have to hand your, fa- you just have to hand your family over to the Lord and say, Lord, we have done our best. We not, may not always have been as wise as we ought, but there's nothing more we can do. Now we hand them over to you. They're now your responsibility. Each of your children has their own personal journey through life with the Lord's guidance and the Lord with them. And you can be sure that the Lord will work personally with your family to their dying breath. But leave that problem with the Lord and move on to other challenges in your own spiritual journey with the Lord. Don't be paralyzed by regrets for the rest of your life. And thirdly, do make sure to reject this simplistic idea that if you serve God, your life will be free from trouble. And as I've mentioned, uh, reject the corollary that if things do not work as you hoped, you must have done something wrong. And finally, as you reason and argue with God in your suffering, you will discover precious truths about God and his plans for you, which you would never have discovered in any other way. You will be richer spiritually, you will be stronger, you will be more resilient, and you will eventually be glad of your difficult journey. So let's just uh, bring our thoughts this morning to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we bring before you uh, at this time those here and those listening and those we know who are going through times of trouble, times of suffering, sometimes that seem unjust. Father, we pray that as we look at your word and as we look at your dealings with Job and how he responded so well to the path that you led him on, we pray that we will become more resilient, that we will become stronger. We will end up being more useful because of that. And we will discover precious truths that we could never learn otherwise. So give us, Father, that spiritual renewal that we need when suffering gets us down. Renew our strength, renew our resilience, and we pray that you would renew our joy as well. So we give you thanks for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.